Well, good morning, church. We have got a lot to cover this morning. And uh, I usually give a fairly good little intro, but for the sake of time, we're just going to get right to it this morning. Turn your Bibles to three, three chapters, bookmark Philippians chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Acts chapter 6. Last week, Doug began his sermon affirming the truths found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 that tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, every time the Word of God is read, preached, sung, prayed, or spoken, it is profitable. According to Isaiah 55, God's Word always accomplishes its purposes. It never, ever returns void. Why is this? Because all of Scripture is about Jesus. In other words, the Bible isn't just a a book of rules to live by. It isn't just a, a book that contains truth. The Bible is profitable because it points us to the living God. It speaks of His character. It speaks of His holiness. It speaks of His providence, His glory, His love, His justice, His grace, His wrath. When we open the Bible in hopes of seeing Jesus, it is always profitable because we will find Him. Today we'll continue our Ecclesiology series by focusing on the church office of deacon. Now, if we're not careful, church, the, the topic of, of church leadership is a topic that could potentially be thought about completely devoid of Jesus. It's possible. We might think that the primary message of preaching about church leadership is simply about order or structure in the church. The primary motive behind teaching about church leadership could be to get our church polity right. See, it could be tempting to treat the issues of church offices simply as an academic exercise. However, friends, I want us to see the ministry of church leadership directly related to the work and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, I want to focus on how the Lord uses deacons as He builds His church. That is our topic this morning, the the topic of of deacons. In in order to accomplish this, it is vital that we first meditate on an oft-forgotten role that Jesus plays in our lives. In the Christian life, we most often see Jesus as fulfilling two major and important roles. First, we see Him as Savior. 
We rightly recognize Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away our sin through His life, death, and resurrection. And second, we, we see Jesus as King. We rightly recognize Jesus as the one sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning from the throne in heaven. Yet, friends, I, I want us to consider another vitally important role that Jesus fulfills in our lives. And friends, that is what we just sang about. That is the role of shepherd. I think that seeing Jesus as shepherd is important in the Christian life because it reminds us that we do not walk this Christian life alone, friends. We do not. We aren't made to fend for ourselves. We, we don't lead ourselves. We don't defend ourselves. We have a shepherd and his name is Jesus. In fact, one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture in the whole Bible is found in John chapter 10. Here in John chapter 10, Jesus, he begins to describe himself not as a king, not as a celebrity, not as one of notoriety, friends, but, one, but as a shepherd. As a shepherd. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He defends and protects his people. And in, in John 10 verse 12, Jesus describes cowardly and shameful shepherds. They neglect and even abandon their flock to be destroyed by the wolves. But in John 10, 14, Jesus is shown to be, friends, the, the good shepherd. He knows his flock and his flock knows him. Jesus isn't some distant force out there or some unreachable authority in the heavenly places. Hear me, Christian. He knows you. He knows your struggle. He knows your heart. He knows your temptations. He knows your situation, and he is not hiding himself from you. You know him. He is not silent, but he leads us by the sound of his voice. In fact, John 10.27 tells us that all of Jesus' sheep hear his voice and respond by following him. Then one of the greatest statements, I think, in all of the Bible is made in John 10.28 where Jesus says this, listen friends, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them from my hand. In other words, all of those who are in Christ will never be removed. They are safe and secure in Jesus' hand. Friends, our shepherd protects us and keeps us in his fold. He is truly a good shepherd. He didn't save us and, and then leave the rest up to us. Moment by moment of every day, Jesus shepherds his people and he leads them. The truth. He guides us, encourages us, convicts us, and equips us by the power of his word through the Holy Spirit as we walk with him. In fact, you might recall, as Doug preached from 1 Peter chapter 5 last week, that in, that in 1 Peter 5.4, Jesus is referred to as the chief what? The chief shepherd. Such an interesting description for Jesus. See, for Jesus to be the chief shepherd implies that Jesus is in charge. I would love to introduce you to the chief shepherd 
to the senior pastor of our church. His name is Jesus. You see, in the ancient Near East, a chief shepherd was the shepherd who gave orders to, to all of the other shepherds. He stood over and above the other shepherds as, as they did their jobs. This seems to be how Peter is describing Jesus in 1 Peter 5. Jesus is the chief shepherd to whom other shepherds will give an account to. These other shepherds, you might remember from last week, from Doug's sermons, they're called what? Elders. And the primary job of the elder is to shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. Of God. In other words, it isn't their flock. It is God's flock that they are called to lead, protect, and feed. Yet the elders don't have ultimate authority in God's church. They are simply stewards of the authority given to them by the chief shepherd, Jesus, to whom they will give an account, which Doug talked about last week. In other words, elders are not free to create their own job description. They are not free to neglect that which Christ has called them to do. Their job is to shepherd the flock under the authority of their chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Elders are the under-shepherd. In fact, one glorious truth that I want us to understand this morning is that Jesus shepherds his church through men that he raises up called elders. I'm going to say that again for you. Jesus shepherds his church through men that he raises up called elders. Specifically, elders are meant to be means of grace by which the chief shepherd by which the chief shepherd shepherds his flock. Said more plainly, Jesus shepherds his church through biblical elders. You see, this is fairly evident when we consider Jesus' words to one of the church's first elders, the apostle Peter in, in John chapter 21. After his resurrection and shortly before his ascension to the throne in heaven, Jesus has an intimate conversation with Peter. And over the course of, of a few minutes, Jesus asked Peter several times, if what? If he loves him. And so Peter, perplexed by the question, emphatically answers, yes, each time. Yes, Jesus, I love you. To which Jesus tells Peter that if he loved Jesus, he would take care of his sheep by feeding them, shepherding them. And again, reiterating, emphasizing, feeding them. See, hear me, friends. Jesus' sheep are deeply important to Jesus. Let me get a little more personal to you. If you're a Christian, you are very important to Jesus. You are not an afterthought. To love Jesus is to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his sheep. Because Jesus loves his sheep... He's entrusted his sheep to be cared for by elders. These elders, these under-shepherds, feed the sheep the word of God as they constantly put Christ before the church through the scriptures. This is the single most important job of the elders. They bring the scriptures before the flock to feed them. Through preaching, through teaching, 
through counseling, through small groups, through prayer, through conversations, through singing, through text messages, through discipleship, over meals, at weddings, funerals, births, celebratory times, times of mourning, in season and out of season, elders bring the word to the people of God. This is their primary job in church. It is essential. This is precisely why the qualifications for elders are that they must be able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it, as Doug talked about in Titus 1.9 last week. In fact, in a sea of character qualifications, this is the one skill that an elder must possess. The elders are to be Bible men who are constantly bringing the fruit of their study to the church. And nothing, 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 nothing for the elder is more important than that. Nothing. Yet, as you might recall from Doug's sermons the past two weeks, the elders have a really large amount of responsibility in addition to just teaching, don't they? According to 1 Timothy 5.17, elders are to lead the church of God. According to 1 Peter 5.2, elders are to exercise oversight by managing and supervising the church. According to Ephesians 4.11-12, elders are called to equip and prepare the saints for Christian ministry. 1 Peter 5.3 says that the elders are to be models of Christian leadership. 1 Peter 5.2 indicates that pastors are to shepherd the whole church. Acts 20.28 says that shepherding looks like feeding, protecting, leading, and even healing within the church. According to Acts 15, Acts 16, and Acts 21, elders took care of judging doctrinal disputes. According to Acts 20 and, and Titus 1, elders are to guard the church from false teachers. According to 1 Timothy 3, elders are to care for the church of God. According to Acts 20, elders are to help those within the church who are weak. In James 5, elders are to pray for the sick and anoint them with oil. In 1 Timothy 4.14, elders are to lay hands on certain gifted individuals. According to Acts 11.29-30, elders are responsible for church finances. According to Acts 11.15-21, and 21, elders represent their local church to other local churches. And elders are to do all of this by being held accountable by God the Father, according to Hebrews 13, 17. Needless to say, that list might have just exhausted you as it exhausted me reading it. Needless to say, friends, being an elder is hard work. It's a lot of work. They're to teach. but They've got a lot more to do than, than just teach. The job description is daunting. When you really consider how much work it requires to be a faithful and biblical elder, it is quite intimidating. It also sheds quite a bit of light as to why a plurality of elders is needed within a church. No mere man could accomplish all of these things and still be biblically qualified to be an elder. I'd love to meet him. I do not care if ministry is your sole vocation. There are not enough hours in a day for a single man to accomplish all of these things and still lead his family well. Yet, even if there is a plurality of elders who are all dedicated to this work, the workload still becomes daunting. When you look at the tasks and the people 
and the responsibilities. Ministries can quickly begin to fall through the cracks, even with a plurality of elders. However, I want us to see that each of these tasks given to the elders is important. All of them. Because they are all a way that the chief shepherd, Jesus, shepherds the flock. That's why they're important. If we are to be a people longing to be shepherded by Jesus, and we acknowledge that in his sovereignty, Jesus gives us under shepherds to take care of us until Christ comes, we should be a people longing for church leadership to have the bandwidth and capabilities to accomplish their Christ-exalting roles and responsibilities. should be our prayer. We truly connect the shepherding of elders to the shepherding of Jesus. The heart of the church should be like, we want them to be able to do what they're called to do. should be our prayer. So perhaps now, you're wondering, Brian, I thought you were supposed to be preaching on deacons today, and all you've talked about so far is eldership. Well, friends, my goal was, was not to have some extended recap on Doug's sermons over the past two weeks. He did quite a good job. I just wanted you to feel the deep importance of elder work as it relates to the work of our chief shepherd. I also wanted you to see how daunting their workload is. Their workload is supposed to be. And hopefully you've begun to ask yourself, if elders have a primary responsibility of teaching within the church, along with many other important responsibilities in the church, how will they get all of these things done? And that is where my main point comes in this morning. My main point is this. The Lord gives the church and the elders deacons to assist them in their non-teaching efforts for the good of the church and the glory of God. Let's say that again. The Lord gives the church and the elders deacons to assist them in their non-teaching efforts for the good of the church and the glory of God. Now, I don't know how you, you feel about that description. I know that the role of deacon has a, a very broad and diverse understanding among many evangelicals today. Many churches use deacons that function as elders. Many churches see deacons as just exemplary servants. Others see deacons as people who simply meet the physical needs of the church. It might be easy to look at some churches and, and criticize them for the way that they use deacons. Perhaps some churches, though, they, they should be criticized for their use or lack of use of deacons. However, I think that the main reason for the lack of a general consensus among evangelicals regarding deacons doesn't center around cowardly pastors, ignorant theologians, or cultural liberalism. I think the primary reason for the diversity of opinions centers around the ambiguity of the role of deacon in the Bible. Just quite frankly, the Bible doesn't have a ton to say about deacons, which made this a very difficult sermon to produce. For instance, the Bible is littered with passages that show us what elders are specifically responsible for. However, it doesn't give us an explicit list to understand 
what deacons are responsible for. Therefore, we have three different options on how to handle the role of deacon. First, because ambiguity exists, we could ignore the role altogether out of fear of getting it wrong. Second, we could feel the complete freedom to use deacons however we see fit, devoid of the text. Third, we could take the limited amount that the Bible does have to say about deacons and do our best to faithfully obey what he has called us to do as a church based on his wise providence he has given us in his word. Friends, I believe that this third option is the most obedient and seeks to honor God the most. Said a bit differently, Alexander Strouch, who, who has probably written the best book on deacons that I've ever read, if you're looking, look up Alexander Strouch, he's got an incredible book on, on deacons. He wrote this, he said, Since Paul never explicitly explained who the deacons are or what they do, we must settle on the interpretation that offers the best supporting factual evidence with the least amount of difficulty. We should pursue an interpretation that provides the most objective evidence, both lexically and contextually, with the least amount of guesswork involved. So, friends, let's, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at all the Bible has to tell us about deacons and see if we can't take some principles that help us better understand God's plan for the church. Four points I've got this morning. First, deacon is a biblical office. Deacon is a biblical office office. We just start off by maybe discussing what, what deacon means. De deacon is an English word that comes from the Greek word diakonos. This is quite a good place to start when we consider what a deacon is because the meaning of the word alone has caused quite a, a stir among theologians through the years. Again, uh, in his book, Al Alexander Strouch gives us insight into work done by theologian Clarence Agin III, who did his doctrinal dissertation on the uh, diacon word group. As part of his study, he examined 770 uses of the word group from secular, Jewish, and Christian sources dating from the 6th century BC to the early 3rd century AD. And to date, Agin's study is the most comprehensive and examines the largest number of occurrences of the, of the diakonon word group. And as a result, Agin proposes four uses of this word diakonon. First, diakonon could refer to a waiter or servant who waits on tables, prepares meals, etc. Second, diakonon could refer to domestic slaves who served household activities. Third, it could be used to refer to an official who delivered a message on, on behalf of another. Finally, it could be used to refer to agency or instrumentality. In other words, one who carries out the will of another or a task on behalf of another. It carries the idea of a subordinate carrying out an assignment on a superior's behalf and having the full authority to execute the superior's delegated task. Should have circled that fourth option. We'll get back to it in a minute. When most Christians think of the word diakonon, they, they, they simply think of a servant. And quite frankly, that is how it is most used throughout the Bible. So deacons are often just thought of as exemplary servants. However, I don't think that is what is referred to in Philippians 1, 
in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The passages in Philippians and 1 Timothy are referring to a specific office within the church. I believe this because all Christians are called to serve. To a certain extent, all Christians are diakonon. Amen? Jesus said, if you want to be great, you'll be a what? An elder? No, a servant. As a Christian, we're all called to exemplary service to the Lord and to one another. However, as Paul greets the church at Philippi in Philippians 1, 1 through 2, what do we read? We read this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these short two verses, friends, Paul gives us reason to believe that the role of deacon is a specific office within the church. How does he do this? Well, Paul makes some distinctions in roles among the church there by greeting three different groups that were present. Paul greets the saints. Paul greets the overseers. Paul greets the deacons. In greeting the saints, Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. He is referring to the congregation. And throughout the epistle, Paul is thankful for the work of the church, their partnership in the gospel, their obedience, their financial gifts, among other things. In other words, this is a bunch of faithful believers. They're a bunch of servants. When Paul describes this church as a whole, it seems they are full of exemplary servants. They're all faithful Christians and their service results in the gospel going forth. Next, Paul greets the overseers in the church. Of course, we might recall from last week that overseers are the pastors or elders. We use that word interchangeably within the church. These overseers are a group of qualified men that are set apart for the specific purpose of providing leadership and teaching in the church. Finally, Paul addresses a different group. The deacons. Presumably, like the elders, deacons are another group of qualified men set apart for a specific purpose within the church. They aren't over and above the congregation, but they are identified as a specific office for a specific purpose. Again, we're not just referring to people who serve in the church or people who serve in a high capacity or even just people who serve well. That is what all Christians should strive for. Paul is referring to a commissioned role called deacon. So if there is an office of deacon, we should ask, well, who are these people? Which brings us to point two. Deacons are a group of qualified men. Deacons are a group of qualified men. In order to understand what these men are like, I want us to look at the other prominent passages about deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 18 through 23. Hopefully you've made your way there. If you haven't, make your way to 1 Timothy 3, 18 through 23. Right after Paul gives young Timothy qualities to look for in establishing elders within the church, he moves on to qualifications to look for in establishing deacons. We might ask, how can we identify whom God has raised up as a deacon within our body. You might ask that. What do their lives look like? What does their character look like? 
To better understand that, let, let us look at 1 Timothy 3, 18-23, where Paul writes, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As we look at the only qualifications for the office of deacon found here in in 1 Timothy 3, we can divide these qualifications into several different categories. First, we can see that deacons are to possess certain character qualities. Deacons are to possess certain character qualities. We see these character qualities listed in in verse 8. Notice that these men are not just good old boys who've been at the church for a while. So we're going to make them a deacon. They're not successful business people with good personalities. They aren't well-connected people in the community. They're not particularly intelligent. Instead, these men are dignified, meaning they're well-respected and honorable. They're not double-tongued. Instead, they mean what they say, and they say what they mean. They aren't political. They don't say something to appease one group and say the exact opposite to appease another group. Deacons are also not addicted to to much wine. I would also add, these men aren't reliant on any substance, but they can demonstrate self-control. They aren't greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons may work hard and earn a good living, but they are not out for dishonest gain. They aren't shady. They aren't cheats. Suffice it to say that deacons are men of high character. Second, we can see theological requirements for deacons. We can see theological requirements for deacons. We see this in verse 9. These men aren't necessarily skilled theologians. They aren't necessarily skilled teachers. However, it is evident that these men hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They cling tightly to the gospel. They aren't just men that are willing to serve in menial ways and are worthy of our applause. These are men that you can look at and see that the gospel makes a difference in their lives. They submit to Christ. They love Jesus. They share the gospel. They're making disciples. They're maturing in their faith. They aren't stagnant Christians. They know the gospel, they treasure the gospel, they hold fast to the gospel, and their lives are marked by a gospel-centeredness. Third, we find that identifying a deacon requires a period of testing. Identifying a deacon requires a, a period of testing. The Bible doesn't give us some magic formula for what this testing looks like. However, we can assume that it refers to an extended period of time to ensure that these men who are being considered for the office of deacon meet these character requirements. I believe, just in in wisdom, I believe it would be wise to see what men look like when they don't get their way. 
when they deal with suffering or setback or some hard season in their lives, inevitably men, all of us, will experience such a season in our lives. It is in such seasons of struggle where our character is truly revealed. In those seasons of, of testing, the Lord uses such seasons to reveal where our hope really lies, where our heart's affections are, and where our joy is found. Such, such seasons often reveal hidden motives, hidden sin, an area where repentance is, is needed. You can only evaluate this stuff over, over time. Such seasons also reveal hearts that truly hope in the Lord and provide sanctified responses to suffering. I don't think that deacons need some formal program of testing. However, their lives need to be observed over a wise period of time. Fourth, we see familial requirements required for the office of deacon. Verses 11 and 12 indicate that deacons need to be married men. Such men are not only married, but they have demonstrated ongoing covenant faithfulness to their one wife, as Doug talked about last week with elders. I would also add that likely in this context, Paul doesn't have in mind a man who has simply stayed married in the midst of an unfaithful and adulterous marriage. Amen? This man has eyes for his wife only. This man is not known to flirt with other women. This man is a one-woman man. He is not addicted to pornography or known to have suggestive, rela- suggestive relationships with other women. But not only that, he manages his household well. Notice that it says that he manages his children and his household well. To manage a household in the ancient Near East involved more than just discipling your children, although it does involve discipling your children. Managing the household meant that your affairs at home were well taken care of. Your home is in order. This could have involved servants, land, their, their, their business, etc. It doesn't mean that you have to have an incredibly successful household or a lucrative household. It simply means that you've stewarded what God has given you well. Now, of course, managing your children does mean discipling them and leading them in the fear of the Lord. It means disciplining them when they are wrong. It means that they aren't all falling by the wayside while you, while you pursue more and more and more ministry. As Doug said last week, the home is one of and the main proving ground of our ability to help lead the church. One additional familial requirement for deacons is found in verse 11. There is actually a requirement for the deacons' wives. See that? The requirements for the wives is essentially the same requirements for the deacons themselves. They must be respectable women. They must not slander others. They are sober-minded meaning that they are level-headed thinkers. You have this wise deacon and his kind of, you know, loco wife on the side. They are rational. Their lives are, are marked by faithfulness. They are faithful wives. They are faithful mothers. They are faithful, faithful in serving the church. These are faithful women. And as, is, as I have suggested already, the main job of deacons is to assist the elders 
as the elders see fit. So it would really make sense that if the deacons are working alongside the elders, they're likely going to see things, know things, and hear some things that are sensitive, personal, and important to the church body. As God has given these men wives to be their main helpmates, these leaders in the church need godly encouragers and advisors at home. They need them. They don't need gossips. They don't need wives that spread discontentment or disunity. While these wives don't qualify as deacons themselves, they serve a vital role and coming alongside their deacon husbands, and supporting, encouraging, and even challenging them to the glory of God and the good of the church. One additional point to consider regarding verse 11. I'm, I'm aware that, that many, many pastors and, and many theologians would interpret verse 11 not as wives, but as, as women in general, and use it as a defense for the position of women deacons. Well, understand this if you're a guest, and even if you're a member of our church, that is not the position of our church, and it is not my personal position. Yet, I would say this, that some of my theological heroes, many of them support such views, okay? And these guys aren't liberals, and these guys are not cowards. They aren't theological lightweights. They aren't caving to the culture. You see, from a, from a lexical standpoint, there is a point to be made for using the word women in verse 11. The Greek word uh, gunekos could be translated as the plural form of wives or women. However, I do believe that contextually, translating it simply women, I do believe that it's problematic. First, Verses 8 through 10 are talking about requirements for men. And then verse 12 cuts right back to qualifications for men as well. It would seem quite odd to think that Paul randomly gives a few character requirements for female deacons without any requirements for testing and then begins to talk about requirements for men again. Contextually, it just, it just doesn't fit. Next, it says that elders must be the husband of one wife. That isn't possible for a Christian woman to be the husband of one wife. Finally, and possibly most important, I found it problematic that within neighboring verses, theologians would translate gunekos, women in general, in verse 11, but would translate the singular form of the same word, gunekos, wife, in verse 12, only a few words later. I believe lexically and contextually, Paul is referring to the wives of deacons, not potential female deacons. Fifth, we see the reward of faithful deacon service. We see that deacons who serve well in their role gain a good standing for themselves. I believe that Paul is referring to a good standing among individuals within the church. Their service is notable and appreciated among the flock. Therefore, people tend to think highly of such people who are serving in such important and personal ways. Also, serving as a deacon seems to be a, a sanctifying experience for the man, as Paul notes that they will have great confidence in their faith. So, 
Who are deacons? Who are deacons? They are a faithful group of biblically qualified men. Deacons aren't some second string level group of men who couldn't cut it as elders. Serving as a deacon isn't a stepping stone to becoming an elder. These guys have nearly the same character qualifications as elders, minus the ability to teach sound doctrine and refute those that contradict it. That should give us a bit of insight as to specifically how deacons serve, which is the subject we will touch on next. Point three, deacons serve the church by assisting the elders. Deacons serve the church by assisting the elders. You have already heard me mention several times now that I, that I believe the role of the deacon is to assist elders in their non-teaching tasks. With the little information given in Scripture about the job of deacons, I want to provide the principles to why I actually believe that is the case, and I'm not just making that up willy-nilly. First, we know this. First, we know that deacons are not elders. Deacons are not elders. Scripture is clear that the final human authority in a church is the group of leaders, or is the group of elders that lead the church. Therefore, churches that tend to use deacons as a form of authoritative elders that govern the church, rather than a plurality of qualified elders, are in need of biblical reform. Every time the office of deacon is mentioned, it is also mentioned alongside the office of elder. Therefore, we know that they are two separate offices. Second, we know that the office of deacon is always listed alongside the office of elder. Therefore, we have reason to believe that the two offices are connected in some way, shape, or form. The office of elder is mentioned alone by itself many times throughout the Bible while the office of deacon is never mentioned without mentioning the elders as well. Third, the qualifications for deacons found in 1 Timothy 3 are very similar to the elders, except for one major point, and that is deacons do not require the ability to teach sound doctrine. See, a deacon could potentially have the ability to teach, but the functioning of their role as deacon doesn't appear to require it. In the Bible, the main theological influencers in the church are elders as they shepherd the flock through teaching the word. Therefore, it seems logical to believe that if deacons have the same character and wisdom as elders, but not the ability to teach, they appear qualified to help elders in many of their tasks except teaching. Fourth, the term diakonos very commonly refers to agency or instrumentality, one who carries out the will of another or a task on behalf of another. You see, from a, from a lexical standpoint, the idea of the deacons being assistants and helping carrying out the will of the elders is very, very appropriate and likely the most accurate understanding of the term in the context of Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3. So when synthesizing all of these observations, I believe that the most logical understanding of how deacons serve is that they assist the elders in their non-teaching functions. 
So the next logical question one might have is, what types of non-teaching functions would the deacons help elders with? Well, simply put, the Bible doesn't give an an exhaustive list of how deacons might serve the elders this way. I believe that the Bible gives us a rather clear function that the deacons are to serve, but it doesn't provide the form. Gives us the function, doesn't provide the form. Said differently, I believe that the form that elders use in a local church can vary depending on the strengths, weaknesses, and workload of the elder team in a given season. I believe that the various needs of a local church body in a given season can also influence how deacons are utilized by the elders. So rather, church, rather than being frustrated by the lack of clarity that the Bible provides us regarding the specific tasks that deacons should assist with, I believe we can trust the wisdom and providence of God in knowing that He has given us in the Scriptures all that we need to see how deacons should serve. Perhaps in his wisdom, contextualized deacon work is his plan for the church. However, lest we think that the Bible doesn't give us any sort of indication of what deacon work could look like, I would like us to look at one passage of Scripture in our time remaining with the hopes of seeing the fruit of the type of work that deacons do. And for that, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 7. And what we'll see there is point 4. Deacon service is very fruitful. Deacon service is very, very fruitful. <clears throat> in Acts 6, 1 through 7, we get an incredible picture of what deacon work could look like and its effect on the local church. If we look at Acts 6.1, we see that the gospel is going forth and the church, by God's grace, is growing. However, as the number of disciples is growing, a problem arises among the disciples. Apparently, the, the Hellenistic widows, which were the, the, the Greek-speaking Jewish believers, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Whether it whether it was the the, the sin of partiality or just simple oversight as the church was growing, the the text doesn't expound on this. It's just, we would just guess. But regardless, whatever's happening here, this had become such a large problem that it reached the 12 apostles who at this point in time were the elders of the church in Jerusalem. In verse 2, we see that the, the 12 apostles brought together the full number of the believers, the disciples, the congregation. was, In other words, it was the whole local church. And they said this, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not right. You see, you've got to understand this. The apostles were not lazy men who were afraid of getting involved with personal disputes in the church. We just want to go sit in our ivory towers and study it's not right for us to neglect that. You see, you got to understand, 
just a chapter earlier in Acts chapter 5, the apostles dealt with a fairly significant church discipline issue resulting in the death of Ananias and Sapphira as a result of their sin. All right? These guys weren't lightweights. Instead, we must understand that the church was growing. People were coming to know Christ as their Savior at a rapid pace, and these new disciples were in desperate need of sound gospel teaching. The apostles at this point in church history were God's chosen instruments to teach. They had many responsibilities, but none were more important than preaching the word of God. Therefore, they said, it is not right for us to neglect this responsibility to wait tables. Literally, the Greek denotes that it is not right for them to give up preaching the word of God to deacon tables. Therefore, the elders gave the church direction. They gave them direction in an effort to solve their problem. In verse 3, the elders told the whole congregation to choose seven qualified men who would serve in this vital capacity to help the church in its time of need. It really is interesting to, to consider the qualifications for these men there in Acts chapter 6. They had to be men of character. In other words, they had good reputations. They had to be strong believers. In other words, they were full of the Spirit. Finally, they were, they were known for their, for their wisdom. Now this, of course, is an abbreviated list, but it does compare quite interestingly to the qualifications for deacons found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you compare them. While the text in Acts 6 doesn't explicitly say that these men held the office of deacon explicitly, many theologians believe that this was the beginning of the office of deacons. For instance, the early church father Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John, noted that the men mentioned in Acts 6 were indeed the first deacons. Not only that, but as I mentioned a bit ago, the Greek phrase for what they would be doing at this moment, waiting tables, was actually the verb deaconing. Now, I'm not trying to convince you that these men were explicitly deacons. The, the text doesn't say that they were explicitly deacons. And the fact that our, our church's position isn't that they were explicitly deacons. I just want you to see that their work is at the very least, hear me, their, their, their work is at the very least very close to what deacons would do. It's a very good comparison. Interesting enough, even though the congregation identified these qualified men, they came from the congregation, the congregation recognized them, they still worked under the authority of the elders. Notice that verse 3 denotes that it was the elders who would ultimately appoint the qualified men to this duty. Congregation picked them out, and the elders are the ones that said, and we will appoint them. This problem obviously fell under the umbrella of the leadership and oversight of the church responsibilities that the elders had, but they delegated responsibilities to these men who would then be under authority of the elders. And verse 4 shows us that the work of these seven men allowed the elders to continue praying and teaching the word of God. 
In other words, the seven men's service allowed these elders to do what only they were qualified and capable of doing in that very moment. Then in, in verse 5, we, we see something very, very encouraging. The whole church is pleased. You see that? Isn't that a miracle? <laughs> I mean, it's just a miracle. I mean, it's tough to find situations where a whole church is pleased. However, it happened here, at least in this moment, they weren't, but now, you know, while disunity, hurt, and frustration existed in the church, the elders listened to their congregation and quickly helped solve the problem by establishing these men to help lighten the load of church leadership. Praise God for wisdom of church leaders. They didn't need to wait until they had every detail figured out to act. They didn't need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and work harder to fix it. They didn't need to neglect their primary responsibilities of, of teaching and prayer. No, hear this, friends. They said, yes, this falls under our jurisdiction, but there are plenty of godly men in this congregation that can help us solve this conflict, identify them, church, and we'll put them to work. That's what they said. So in verse 5, we see the names of, of these seven men. Then in verse 6, we see that these men were publicly identified and commissioned for service by the elders, by the laying on of hands, and prayer. See that? They were identified. They weren't just serving in some unidentified capacity. Their, their role was explicit. It was intentional. The whole church knew who these men were and what their role was. It was not enough to say, well, we probably have some men who are already serving in this capacity in an unofficial role. No. For those elders in that church, these men were publicly identified, affirmed, and given real responsibility. And again, the whole church was pleased. However, let's not miss this last and perhaps most important detail. In verse 7, as a result of their table waiting and fixing this problem of disunity within the church, what do you see? The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that incredible? Not only was the fruit of the ministry of the seven unity among the church, People were coming to know Christ because the word was able to continue going forth. People were repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation because the seven waited tables under the authority of the elders. Not only that, but it appears that the unity that existed among the church then provided an, op an apologetic to the outside world so much that even the former unbelieving priest came to Christ as a result. Friends, this had to absolutely thrill the church in Jerusalem at that time. This had to have been an exhilarating time to see the body functioning well. This is what faithful leadership in a local church results in. The joy of the people and the advancement of the gospel. So, as we close, 
How do we apply this text? How, how do we really, talk about collectively, how, how do we really apply Doug's two sermons from last week? Well, I, I suppose for some, you might see the role of deacon or elder and your heart desires to serve in that capacity. Friend, if that is you, my encouragement would be to spend time in prayer asking the Lord, not for open doors, but to make you more like Christ. While the character qualifications of elder and deacon are certainly qualities we should all pursue, don't pursue the qualifications to earn the positions. Pray that the Lord would sanctify you because it honors Christ and gives him glory. Amen? Next, seeing that the qualifications for both elders and deacons are primarily all character-based, we must acknowledge this, church, that we really can't train up elders or deacons. We can only recognize them. Sure, we can aid in the theological education of the men of this church. We can perhaps help them become better teachers of the word. However, no group in this church has the power to actually sanctify or change a man. Only God can do that. The role of elder and deacon is vital to the health of this church. Therefore, we must pray that God would raise up such men according to his wisdom. However, I must acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of the people in this room will never become an elder or a deacon. As you heard me teach through the qualifications today, many would hear such qualifications and and begin to rule out themselves or others for a variety of different reasons. Therefore, there can be a tendency to simply think that such passages of Scripture don't apply to you. Even worse, you might think that because you aren't called to the position of elder or deacon, that you're some second-class Christian in the church. As Doug said last week, that couldn't be further from the truth. See, friends, 1 Corinthians is clear, and hear me? Every member of this church is vital. Not just important. Vital. Every gift is vital. Every act of service is vital. And there is nothing that Satan wants more than for you to walk in constant discouragement or anger because God hasn't called you to serve in a specific capacity. I pray that you would joyfully embrace exactly how God has called you and equipped you to serve this body, knowing that your service and your gifts are vital, not important, vital to the life of this body. However, I also pray that all of us would come to the realization that leaders in the church are a gift from the Lord. They are. God doesn't give us leaders God doesn't give us leaders to compete with them. 
God doesn't give us leaders to be in a constant state of frustration with them. God doesn't give us leaders to rebel against. Beloved, God gives us leaders for our good and for our joy. And this is the sentiment that Paul expressed in, in 2 Corinthians 1.24. Paul said, we are workers for your joy. So, the Lord gives the church deacons to serve the elders in their non-teaching ministry. They serve the body in a variety of ways. Most often, they will likely serve the body in ways that are falling through the cracks for the elders. Yet, these are areas that the elders aren't always able to directly help with for one reason or another. However, as we saw in Acts 6, such ministry brings glory to Christ and joy to the church. The elders are also workers for our joy. The elders should be laboring. Yes, laboring. Laboring in prayer and in the word ministry. They are uniquely qualified and called to do that. Practically speaking, these elders, these men, put Christ before us in various ways throughout the week so that we can feast on our glorious Savior. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the things of the world suddenly grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. As we feast on the Word, we will be convicted of sin and walk into the light by the power of the Spirit. As the Word of God is proclaimed, relationships will be restored. Hope will be renewed. Affections will be stirred. Idols will be let go of. Fear will be turned to courage. Anxiety will be replaced with, with peace. The hurried heart will find patience in the sovereignty of God. And the gospel that is so boldly proclaimed among the church will be mobilized to the streets. And by faith, I believe that the Lord blesses His church when the elders of the church labor in praying and teaching. Most importantly, let's not forget that the primary reason church leaders work for our joy is because Jesus is shepherding us through the under-shepherds. This should motivate us to pray for our leaders. It should motivate us to look to our leaders not with speculation, but with joy, knowing that they are agents of God's grace in our lives. God has put men in leadership in your life for your good, your joy, and your sanctification. May we be quick to thank God for such men, not because the men are so great, not because they are perfect, not because they are without flaws, but because we know the Bible tells us that God is using them to shepherd and feed us. No matter what our current area of service is, no matter what it is, no matter what your role is, this reality should give us great joy and great peace. Finally, our final area of application requires that we address the elephant in the room. If you've been a part of our church for a while, you know that as of today, we do not have deacons here at Community Bible Church. In large part, that has had to do with a lack of understanding of the role of deacons in the past, or at least disagreement on the role. If we couldn't explicitly identify what deacons do 
How could we establish a deacon ministry in our church? Well, as, as I'm speaking on, on behalf of the elders, the elders have come to the conviction that they will pursue adding deacons sometime in the future. Sorry, sometime in the near future. The elders believe that such a decision will result in gospel fruitfulness, gospel unity in the church, and gospel order and conformity to who God has called us to be in the church. I pray that this ecclesiology series hasn't just felt like a, a giant public relations stunt seeking to justify how good of a church that we are. Instead, I pray that the Lord is using this sermon series to bring biblical reformation to Community Bible Church. I've been encouraged to see some fruit of this series. And I'm encouraged that the pursuit of a biblical ecclesiology has encouraged the elders to respond in obedience to establishing deacons here. I'm encouraged to see how the Lord will continue to reform us and conform us over the next few weeks as this study winds down. Regardless, may we pray even now that the Lord would take the truths that we heard today and begin the Reformation process in our hearts with great joy. Amen.